Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Building and flying at the exact same time, which means you've got to drive growth, you've got to go out there and sell, you've got to keep shipping product, but at the same time, you've got to build a business. Now that US online payments giant PayPal has announced specifics of its product in the buy now, pay later space, smaller local players like Zipco and Afterpay will have to bring their full armory of smarts and skills into play to not allow the 100-pound US gorilla steal their advantage. In part one, we heard how Larry Diamond has always been quizzed by investors about PayPal's dominance as a potential competitor. Diamond's answer, that he's surprised it took PayPal so long. Eight years, in fact, to innovate, copy the Aussie startups and launch its own BNPL product. That response is instructive of how agile Zipco believes itself to be. In part two of my chat with Larry Diamond, who's grown Zipco to have some two and a half million customers in Australia alone and tens of thousands of merchants, he reveals Zip's foundational culture they call building and flying at exactly the same time. Sounds hair-raising, but this entrepreneur also talks of the importance of endurance in the startup life, how they built from one bike shop to now all major retailers, and just why he stays completely unconnected one day every single week. Hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Zip co-founder and CEO, Larry Diamond. When you started scaling up Zip and you got past perhaps these first few years, what was the real step change where you knew this is actually really going to work and this is going to be so successful? I think when we, when we look back, Corporate 2013, 2015, we listed on the stock market. And that was a very unorthodox listing where we bought a mine. We'll leave that for maybe later on. And later in the year, we ended up, I remember with Pete, we were, we were pitching at the time Fantastic Furniture, Thermomix, and Kogan. And we pitched all three. Fondly remember going into Fantastic Furniture's office. It was Pete and I, might have had two or three staff. We showed them the tech on the screen and they said, wow, this is fundamentally better than what we have today with our other financiers. The big question for them was, who the hell are you guys, right? Where's, where's, where's the credibility? And we said, well, yeah. you know, we, you scramble a little bit, but it, it, it was fair. We pitched Thermomix, and at the time, a fellow by the name Craig Duffersey, who'd been the national sales manager at Flexi, joined us, a good friend of Pete, and we went and pitched Thermomix, and again, we showed great tech, the fact that we could approve more customers, a better experience, and we were able to steal them from one of the competitors. And for us, that was probably a, a landmark transaction for us where we said, okay, we actually have something here. So Thermomix was definitely a turning point, and I think for us as well, when ZipPay got going and we signed you know, some of the biggest retailers in the uh, West Farmers Group. That was pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think finally probably the, the other point was just that 
the staff actually were really enjoying the work and you could feel the culture was starting to really grow and we felt there was something special there. But how did you spread the word from that first bicycle shop in Surrey Hills in Sydney to then developing to some of the West Farmers groups, Bunnings and Kmart and what have you? It's really just the endurance game. If you have the passion, the startup life is just all about endurance, cutting your way out of the jungle and just keep going back again, again, and, and again. I remember sending an email to Rosalind Kogan, who we actually sharing an email last year in 2012 when we had the original idea, where he said, yeah, that, that's a pretty cool idea. It took, it took five years to sign Kogan. And so this idea that you make sure that every conversation you have is an impactful conversation, you build a good relationship, you take feedback on as well as we continue to build and fly and improve the product, and you just keep going back again, again, and again, like even the retail network, we didn't have anyone in our business or in our immediate network that had deep retail connections, which would have been great. You know, that would have been a great way to start. If we, if we had a, an amazing, really, now that you're describing it like that. It is amazing that you've done so well in the retail space. Yeah, it would be nice to have a, a rich uncle that worked at a big retailer who just gave us a go. <laughs> it would have cut down a lot of time. Oh, Larry, just just briefly, I mean, when you're scaling up like that internally, rapid growth, employees, you know, you're having to bring people on board, you're trying to bring retailers on board. How challenging was that internal scale up? Look, yeah, it, it was what we call is you're building and flying at the exact same time, right? You have building to be and flying. Building right. and flying, which means you've got to drive growth, you've got to go out there and sell. You've got to keep shipping product, but at the same time, you've got to build the business. You've got to hire people. You've got to design new products. You have to build for the future. Now, that balance between building and flying is, is very, very difficult, but it's the startup. You almost have to do the hard work. Like, had we been given a free carrot of the big retailer and we had a different background, I don't think we would have built these skills, which is the ability to multitask, make sure you're only focusing on the critical two or three things that you need to get to the next gate the next funding round, the next merchant, the next customer experience, and be able to context switch a lot, you know, have a, a sales pitch, immediately move to a hiring conversation, immediately move to a coaching conversation. And so this ability to do that and continually reor reorganize the business, very fast feedback cycles, listening, learning, improving, just to, you know, a little bit better every day, I think over time has given us the secret ingredients. You almost like have to go through the pain. Did you ever come close to falling over or was, let me ask it this way, was yeah. failure often very close? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> no one can see what's happening behind the scenes. I think for us, moments that we reflect on would be after that first capital raise of 170 grand, we're out of money a year later and we had a staff for about five, but we were all working for free for basically one year plus. And so holding that together was very challenging. And we got to a stage there where we had a couple options. One was a capital raise that would have wiped out the equity of all the other founding team, you know, really unpalatable idea or going public. And so that was interesting. Even, even later on when we were looking to refinance our debt, some of our debt funders became very difficult to deal with. We weren't going to renew financing. And so these moments were there all the time when you're negotiating terms. And often we just took the position of, of strength, even though we might have uh, on the poker table 2-7 unsuited and a pretty bad hand, you keep playing like it's your best hand. And I think we've done that 
all the way along. The only other moment would be sometimes internally the stress did get pretty high. And I remember saying to Pete, if we can't find a way out of this, it might be the time. If we can't fix this, you know, this particular business problem, organizational problem, then we might have to call it quits. But you just stick with it and solve solve problems as as you go. It's probably a couple of organizational things and, and a couple of funding things, which is which have been pretty cool moments. Larry Diamond, I just want to step sideways a little bit. You grew up in Sydney. Tell me a little about that. You went to private school, Mariah College in Sydney's eastern suburbs. Was your family in business? Were they retailers? Were you or them interested in business or computers as you were growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in, born born in South Africa. Parents left in the 80s when uh, trying to get away from the apartheid and, and they had compulsory conscription as well. So it wasn't a particularly exciting place. They moved across here, not knowing anyone and starting from scratch here. My dad was a doctor in South Africa, had to re-qualify here. Mum was a, a social worker in South Africa who became an early learning childcare teacher. Grew up in Sydney. Now, my father definitely got us onto the Apple computer very, very early. I remember Apple, the, the Apple IIe, and, and that was there in the house pretty early on. Also, kids in the neighbourhood had the old 386 computers when bulletin boards were around which was always pretty exciting to play new games and, and play with the neighborhood kids. In high school, I did pick computer studies, and that for me was, when I look back on it, definitely a huge part in where I am today. We had a great, a great computer studies teacher, Mrs. Schwartz, you know, really instilled in us just the power of computing. We coded on Apple, Apple Basic and Future Basic for year 12. We did a big computing project where we built games and calculators and that was exciting and that feedback cycle of just creating products out of nothing was was incredibly exciting so finished school with you know excitement about the dot-com it was late 99 dot-com boom busted and so what started out going to computers over at uts i ended up getting you know attracted to the world of finance but you know love computing love sports you know we used to go up the coast of foster during the the summer holidays and so yeah really really grew up in the Sydney neighbourhood. Yeah, so you were obviously very good at maths, very good at computing. You took off, you travelled a lot as a young person and lived on a kibbutz in Israel. What did you bring from that experience, do you think, to Zipco, to your life? Yes, after high school, I couldn't rush into university. Everyone needed a a break. And I think when when I look back, you know, working on a kibbutz, studying on a kibbutz as well, and then traveling around the world, did a lot of backpacking through Southeast Asia and Europe. Probably, you know, a few things. One is just the global culture and global connectivity. I'm a big fan of people and building relationships. I believe that everyone has got a superpower and strength and every relationship is really important because you never quite know when you're going to meet that person again. And humanity is good. So I think definitely people, everyone is equal. Everyone can be trusted was a huge part and and a thirst for diversity. And I think a lot of those things have come into Zip. Certainly being a business analyst as my first job out of university at Pacific Brands, working in Richmond in the internal division, consulting to Bonds, Burley, Hush Puppy, Whole Proof, and so forth, almost gave me the license to ask any question. I think that is mm. quite a, a powerful opportunity. And so that also we, we instill here, this idea that you can ask any question. Don't be shy, you know, and, and learn learn the answer and improve as you go. So I think that those things have definitely been incorporated here. Yeah. Do you reckon you retrenched, as I understand, from Deutsche Bank? Do you think that experience affected you? 
Yes, me. I was made redundant in Deutsche Bank in, in 2012. You know, as you go through life, the challenge, you need to work out who you are. What are your strengths and what are your passions? And so I think, and some people wake up and they say, all right, I'm going to become a doctor and they just kick off a long career in medicine and all that. But many of us actually need to go on a journey. You have to experiment through and have a different experience to work out who are you. And certainly, you know, the, the world of investment banking for me really helped me understand what are my skills, what, what are my strengths and what are my passions. During the last couple of months at Deutsche Bank, I wasn't enjoying myself. I wasn't waking up feeling like I'm contributing and I'm realizing my potential. So I felt constrained on the floor there when I was speaking, any jobs that I had. And I was applying for a job to work as a buy-side analyst at some of the uh, funds. I really wanted to be a stock picker. Uh, I was liking the, the Benjamin Graham style of investing. I kept getting close but could never get the job, couldn't get the job. And I think for me, that journey, you know, while I was unhappy at Deutsche Bank and really made me realize that I probably couldn't go and sit in a room analyzing balance sheets with very little human interaction, at least I could rule that off my list of things to do. You know, it's certainly being made redundant at Deutsche Bank meant, wow, there's a whole big world out there. You can talk to people, see what's going on. Because you're quite, when you're investment banking, you tend to be quite myopic. You don't even visit other buildings in the city. You're just working till 2 a.m. every night. So it's definitely a great opportunity for me to clean the canvas and work out what to do next. Yeah, so you had previous to that learned some hard lessons from your previous employment at Macquarie and perhaps how it handled the GFC mm-hmm. and staff when obviously the whole financial services and banking world was just tipped upside down. What were those lessons, do you reckon? Yeah, the definitely remember on, on the trading floor watching the, the stock market open up 8% down and our stocks opening up 30% down. When I reflect on Macquarie, a few a few lessons for me. One, an incredible entrepreneurial culture. I think that was definitely there. This idea that if any you know director had an idea, they could really give it a go, and that's I think what what you've seen there. A lot of us, particularly the youngsters, worked together to support each other. It was an incredibly steep learning curve for me because I actually came in even in into the grad program, but I really came as a lateral hire because I'd worked for a couple of years at Pacific Brands, and so for me, every, right. everything was brand new, and so. Incredibly steep learning curve, but the support from each other, learning quickly, attention to detail were quite important. So those are probably the positive things. Going for the GFC, Macquarie had been, if you look at their charts, they always used to overlay revenue and profit and people. They never, certainly in my time I was there, even previously, they certainly had never had to go through a big round of redundancies. And certainly after the GFC, when they started making the cuts, a lot of the techniques they used around laying off staff were really bad. Um, and again, first time doing it, so I don't know if you could blame them. You probably can. But um, a lot of those lessons certainly came into play for us and we had to go through some tough times here last year, just the human element, the empathy element of staff and, and how to treat staff. So you mean it was brutal? It was, well, we used to say 5 p.m. was uh, midday. It was, I'd say that the layoff process post-GFC was brutal, yes. That was... Uh, Mm. That was uh, a challenging time and uh, a lot of friends were made redundant. We, we had to sit by our phones all day, wait for phone calls and people were randomly told to leave. So uh, I think that element was absolutely brutal, but, you know, we enjoyed the hard work. I mean, that was, that, that was yeah. part of the culture. Just want to skip forward because I know we're taking a lot of your time and, and I just want to ask you a few more things. You listed in, as you said before, in 2015 in an unusual way, you took over a failing listed 
Shell Company, which was a mining company. That is correct. Is that right? That is correct. A little bit unorthodox for a tech startup, you might say. Why? <laughs> a great question. Um, glad you asked. Again, you, you go to the founder mentality. We had to find a way to raise capital. And we had two options at the time. One was a funding round over here in Sydney that would have wiped out the equity. Or this particular option, a good friend of mine, John Winters, who's actually the founder of Superhero, had a mining shell, Rubiana. They'd raised $20 million. They'd tried to dig for gold and copper, had found nothing. And there was this crazy idea that we could buy this company, recapitalize it, recomply it with, with chapters one and two, and then effectively issue ourselves shares and become, become the owners. And so we spent three months doing due diligence on the mines over in Western Australia, making sure there was no waste and getting rid of all the, all the you know, environmental and other liabilities. Uh, but I can tell you now, when I took that idea back to the team, it was a resounding absolutely no. Why the hell would we, would we go public? And we, had, we went to the whiteboard. We put pros and cons. The cons went all the way down the whiteboard. I think we had three pros, you know, access to capital and profile. Somehow we, we all managed to galvanize around this opportunity and the ASX has been an unbelievable funding vehicle for early stage tech. And again, a big reason that we're here today, the private capital market at that time wasn't supportive. So a little bit of an anomaly, a tech company buying a, a resources company, but it just goes for the founder, the founding mentality. It's, it's endurance. It's doing whatever you have to do. We could have ended up with another crazy story. Yeah. So you raised what? Several million. So we basically bought the mine, we raised $5 million and we ended up issuing 80% of the stock to the Zip shareholders and we took over the business and it was $5 million. The next year we raised $20 million, the next year we raised $40 million and yeah, the story continues. Yeah. Just briefly, you talked about, you know, what you want kind of Zip to be. How would you describe the internal culture and what's important to you about culture? Yeah, so when, when people ask around what are our competitive differentiators, you can talk to product, you can talk to value prop, and, you know, we have huge ambitions to get to, how to get to 100 million users, not just in the developed world, but in the developing and, and emerging markets, the, the growth markets, and you can start to see us invest in, because we think we can make a huge difference there. That's almost the output, 100 million monthly active users. What's really driving us is how do we create a culture where very flat architecture, Clusters of smaller organizations inside our business where people feel like business owners. They bring their best self to work and we create a playground for people to find their strength and find their passion. It might be starting in one team, moving to another team. We think we can do that here and then get rewarded in stock. So we really feel like a business owner. And so when we hear stories over the years of Zipsters buying, buying a house, for example, you know, it's, it's, you know, that's probably the most the most satisfying thing. Equally, the biggest challenge for us is how do we maintain speed, optimize for speed, velocity, and that that startup culture around fast decision-making and and moving quickly without bureaucracy as we scale and as we scale globally. And so we're doing a lot of work how we sort of codify our our DNA. And I think if you look under the hood of us versus many other organizations, I think you would see a very different culture. Of course, 2020 was marked by the COVID pandemic. We're still working our way through it. After initial worry, uh, maybe even panic, you then went on to have an amazingly good year. Just tell us briefly about COVID and your experience. It was a, you know, it was definitely the highs and lows. We were we were in March, seeing the the COVID situation unfold, and uh, for a business which is focused on growth, which which is all about 
deliver great results, raise capital, go for growth and prove it out. That business model gets challenged under such conditions. Equally, we were very uncertain around what the credit and consumption behavior was going to be. And we, we moved quite decisively. Our chairman came up with the term Operation Lungfish, which, uh, which we, which is a, is a fish that can live underwater without food or air or water uh, for three years. And so oh. we had to find a way to, you know, reduce the growth elements of the business and just focus on the core, which the core is profitable because we invest a lot of our um, excess returns into, into growth. So as a result, we let go about 20% of our staff and all through Zoom. And that was a very difficult time. Oh, very, very wow. difficult time, particularly when people love coming to work, you know, because of everything that we've spoken about earlier. And, you know, a lot of the, the tears were around, remember one of, the, one of the girls here was saying, we kind of know you have to do this, but where am I going to find another company like like Zoom? So to go from that situation to then a few months later when the world actually turns out to be quite different for our sector, you know, online consumption, credit actually was better than it was pre-COVID, you know, huge savings. And then to acquire Quadpay as well, we, we would have had a very different future. So, you know, we're incredibly fortunate and privileged for that uh, return. And, uh, you know, we were able to go out and hire a lot of people, brought back some of the staff and turn the ship around. You, you've recently reported your quarterly trading update, which was on top of your last half year, your results have been pretty extraordinary. Is that just a COVID boost or will that stay? Yeah, we, we believe a lot of the, the fundamentals actually here to stay. I think anyway, we look at it, we are a growth business. And so how we invest for growth, whether it's through acquisition or new product releases, that is part of our DNA. In terms of the sector though, you know, we believe that the online sector has been brought forward five years and that people aren't just going to roll back to their old ways. This phenomenon around meet the customer wherever she is, both fulfillment choice, could be I want to buy online, pick up in store, I want to get something delivered within two hours, and payment choice. These trends were actually here well before the pandemic. It just took a pandemic to accelerate these trends, which is about customer centricity. And so our view is a few million people started buying groceries online during COVID and they've realized how, how easy and convenient it is. So these trends actually are here to stay. The other thing is, you know, we have a huge, diverse surface area. Customers use us to shop online, pay bills. And so we, we see the opportunity, if you look at just payment volume in Australia and you look at America, for example, where only a couple of percent of the online checkout goes through buy now, pay later, whereas in Australia and more mature markets, it's 20%. It just shows the size of the opportunity. You did make a huge jump in revenue, but what's your bad and doubtful debts in dollar terms? Yeah, so, you know, we write off about 2%, and it's 2% of the receivables, which is probably some of the most competitive performance results if you look at us versus the other payladers here or even the credit card. If you look at globally, we write off between, say, 3 and $5 million a month globally. It is, it is a cost of business. It comes through. That's from- a lot. Yeah, but we're also processing billions and billions of dollars. So if you actually look at the percentage, it's a very, very small percentage. Of the okay, so you're not worried about those bad and doubtful debts? I mean, it is part of doing business, right? It is it, it is a part of yeah. business. We are in the credit game. And so whether it's a fraud loss, our losses are in two, are really in three buckets, first-party fraud, third-party fraud, and credit. So this is always going to happen. 
it's, it's really a, a part of our business model, and we spend a lot of effort and energy. We have data, huge amount of data scientists, machine learning models, and analysts that work on this so we can optimize for good checkout conversion, but equally make sure the right customers come onto the platform. And then once those customers are on the platform, we need to do a really good job at making sure we understand their current circumstances. So if they change, we can also manage the subsequent period. So you know, it, it is a core part of the business model. Larry, what have you found important for you personally to manage all the stress, all the balls that are juggled in the air? Yeah, so this is really the first business that I've run. And what we do say is that as long as we can keep leveling up the next level, more people, more complexity, and we work out how to solve that, then we can keep going on the journey. So I think you need to to have really radical candor and a real strong sense of self-awareness to go, okay, I need to learn that new thing. I need help there. I'm going to need an expert over there. And so an ability to do that routinely, to take a step back, reflect what's working, what's not working, and what we need has become you know, a huge part of how we operate. Also making sure that we surround ourselves with good advice. The advice could come from colleagues. We've got you know, a group of us at the top here where we get a lot of counsel from each other, as well as the board. The other piece is probably, you know, for me, taking one day a week and just turning off completely just to do a recharge, a reset. And that is a huge part of the ability to kind of stay sane, recharge the batteries on Saturday, and then allow it to all begin again. And so that radical candor, what we call zip back, fast, fair, and transparent feedback, knowing how to go and solve problems quickly and um, and then having some, some time off together is probably the secret formula. Yeah. Larry, is that taking Saturday as a quiet day, is that part of your faith? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So so Saturday for me is, is basically a, a day of rest and I turn off the phone. I don't use computers and I think all of humanity needs a day off to abstain from technology these days. And it's a great time to spend time with the family, friends and focus what's on, on what's important in life. Yeah. So your Jewish faith is very important to you? Absolutely, yeah. It's definitely a huge part of who I am, you know, and that's a strong sense of family, community, and trying to do the right thing. You're growing very rapidly in the US market. So is world domination and nothing less, is that what you're after? You said your aim is 100 million active monthly users. Seriously, where are you with that figure? But also, is that international territory and that bid to secure international territory. Is that a race against time for Zip? Look, Zip, you know, for us, as we've touched on earlier, the opportunity is now. You know, a lot of these sectors and industries and it's all facets of fintech are disrupting incredibly quickly. So that is why Zip is moving quickly and we're using a mixture of greenfield rollouts like we've done in Canada to acquisitions in the Middle East. We're using a multitude of techniques to grow very, very quickly. We think we can make a difference. We think we can bring responsible and fair financial products to society. We think we can create wealth and make a huge difference. And so certainly the developed world, we can do a huge job, but we think in countries like the Philippines, you know, there might be huge populations underbanked with, with a lack of access to affordable credit and financial services. We think we can do a huge, we can make a huge difference. Now, what's key is a, a technology platform and a capability that is unique and global. And so we're spending a lot of time working out how we do that. Uh, so we think... Yeah, and how long do you reckon you've got to do that? Definitely. The, the next the next three years is where you're going to see it. Uh, businesses are popping up every day. There's a new business in Buy Now, Pay Later, 
or wallets or fintech or credit or wealth, pension, superannuation, investing. So the time is now. I reckon the next three years, the face of financial services is going to look incredibly different, certainly in the growth markets, but look out for markets like Australia. Banking's under pressure. They struggle to organize. They struggle to innovate. And the unbundling of the bank is happening right before our eyes. What would you say to young people wanting to pursue their own idea and be entrepreneurial? I think there has never been a better time to follow your passion. And I think that if you have passion, you should give it a red hot crack. I think there's never been a better opportunity, but you do need to make sure that you identify your strengths, make sure that you also combat those strengths or weaknesses with other strengths around you to complete that jigsaw and follow follow your passion. The sky is the limit. I really think that no longer do we need to be conditioned to go to necessarily university, you know, get the job in the accounting firm and follow that particular process. I think that learning on the job with the right people is really exciting. So, you know, we, we had a really difficult time to raise capital, but if you believe in yourself and you also really understand the marketing which you operate and the opportunity, validate that through talking to people, there has never been a better time to, to start up. And so if I look at it, I'd say what I've enjoyed most is the internal workings of the business and building the culture and creating an amazing place for people to come to work. People spend so much time of their life at work. We have a duty to make it a really exciting place and I enjoy coming to work every day. So hopefully we can, we can keep that dream alive. Larry Diamond, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks so much, Ellen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.